as the kids are making their way to their classroom. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with them in them to Genesis chapter 19. This morning we're covering the first 29 verses of this chapter. It's a lot to cover in more ways than one. Passage of scripture that deals with the destruction of Sodom, the judgment of sin, the wrath of God. So this passage, along with the one that we'll cover next week, are some of the most difficult in Scripture, difficult and yet necessary. We live in a world that is confused. We live in a world where sin, especially the kind of sin that we'll be looking at in this passage this morning, is not grieved or mourned or avoided, but celebrated. I believe that before too long, I'm not a prophet, but I believe the way our trajectory of our country is going, it will not be too long before a biblically faithful exposition of this kind of passage of Scripture will be seen as hate speech. In fact, there are segments of our culture even today that would label what I will be saying this morning about this text to be just that. But even more troubling, even more disturbing and sad is that many, if not most, Christian denominations today are at best unclear about the sin of homosexuality and at worst supportive fully of it. And this in the name of love. This in the name of loving your neighbor. But churches, it is not loving in the least to be unclear about sin. Or to in any way soft sell God's judgment of it. In fact, I would say instead that it is a kind of self-love that leads people to be to compromise biblical truth in hopes that people will not reject them. If I'm driving down a road where a bridge is out and you know that the bridge is out, it is unloving of you not to warn me. In that case, how much do you have to, in fact, hate me to not warn me that the bridge is out? This morning's passage is also difficult because it displays in very graphic, vivid, and plain detail the wrath of God. God pours out his wrath in a way that we don't see that often in Scripture Fire and brimstone. God metting out justice. A picture of God that some would like to sweep under the rug and avoid. As if the wrath of God were something that we ought to be embarrassed about. But I would submit to you that unless we embrace the seriousness of our sin... And unless we admit that a just God must punish sin or else he is not just, we will not see the gospel as good news. And we will not appreciate the grace and mercy that is ours in Christ. At the outset of of a passage like this, I feel obliged to warn all of us, myself included, not to look at a story, a passage of scripture like this from the perspective of those sinners out there. As if this is just a message for those who have given themselves to the sin of homosexuality. When in reality we should listen to this story from the perspective of a focus on the sin in here. In our own hearts. So that we might all of us flee to Christ for rescue. So let's read together verses 1 through 29 of Genesis chapter 29. uh, Genesis chapter 19, excuse me. And allow the Lord to speak to us from it. This is the word of God. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. 
And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry, outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-laws, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords, behold, your servant, has found fa- your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the dis- disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities. And what grew on the ground... But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was, when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this book that we hold in our hands. We know it to be your word. And we ask, Father, that you would speak to your people this morning. Father, that you would... Help us to see our own sin for what it is and that we too would flee to Christ for rescue. May the good news of the gospel ring loud and clear for everyone in this room this morning. Those who have never come to faith in Christ, who need rescue from the judgment and the wrath of God that you will one day pour out in the judgment against sin but also those who have come to faith in you and yet are wrestling and fighting against sin. 
Father, may we all run to Christ this morning and find rescue and transformation so that you might be glorified through changed lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In his second letter to Timothy, Paul writes, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. In Genesis chapter 19, both this passage that we look at this morning as well as the passage we'll see next week, which is even more troubling and disturbing, being a part of Scripture is the breath of God and is therefore profitable for us in some way. And so we need to ask ourselves, what what is the teaching that is profitable to us here? What is the reproof and the correction? In, in what way ought this to train us in righteousness? The simple outline of the passage divides the action of this narrative into four sections. The first 14 verses are the announcement of destruction. And then the next eight verses, Lot is rescued by God's grace And then we see the destruction of Sodom in the four verses, and then the closing three verses are Abraham's witness of the aftermath. As you look at those four sections, we'll see that the conflict of this narrative rises slowly in those first two sections. As the reason for the destruction of Sodom is, first of all, evidenced by the men of Sodom and then declared verbally by the angels themselves and then we see the rescue of lot that is initiated and accomplished by god's mercy and then this action of the narrative reaches a climax in that third section when fire and brimstone from heaven are rained down on sodom and gomorrah and the cities of the valley are destroyed and then there's the resolution of the conflict in the story In that scene of Abraham, as he overlooks the cities of the valley, that he had climbed that hill the day before and had prayed for the deliverance of the city, now he looks out on what just a few hours before were the cities, and now they're just the smoke rising from the ashes of what was once the cities. The chapter, chapter 19, starts in very much the same way as chapter 18 did. There in chapter 18, Abraham is sitting at the door of his tent and three visitors come to town. Here in chapter 19, it's his nephew Lot. The focus of the story now shifts to his nephew and he's sitting as well, not at the door of his tent, but at the gate of the city And two visitors come to town. As in the story with Abraham in chapter 18, he doesn't know at this point that they're angels. He just knows them to be visitors, strangers, foreigners, travelers. But in this case, also similar to Abraham in chapter 18, Lot shows hospitality to them. He invites them to stay with him in his house. But they initially refuse. And they say, no, we're going to stay in the town square. But we're told that Lot presses them strongly and they finally relent and agree to go to his house. But wouldn't that have been an amazing scene? To see these two angels in the town square spending the night there with the men of Sodom surrounding them in the night and them supernaturally warding them off would have been An epic scene, no doubt. But they relent and they agree to to go to Lot's house, where just like in chapter 18 with Abraham and his visitors, he prepares a feast and he treats them with warm hospitality. And, And there's a couple of lessons that we learn here from how Lot treats these visitors. The first is that we learn something about showing hospitality. The the lesson about learning. To, to show hospitality to strangers is a lesson that we primarily glean from chapter 18 when the three visitors visit Abraham. 
But this unmistakable repetition of this theme here indicates that this is a very important lesson that Moses wants to get across to his audience. It's it's an obvious and unmistakable repetition of this theme of hospitality. On a micro level, this could be anyone that God brings across our path that has a need that we can somehow seek to meet and care for. Just like the story of the Good Samaritan, as we, as we looked at that when we went through that passage in chapter 18, to, who, who cared for and provided for and helped even the one who was his enemy. But on a, on a macro level, I was thinking about this passage and the one previous, the story previous about Abraham and his visitors and how he went to great lengths to show hospitality and, and I consider that one of the strangers for us today, one of the visitors that we can think about in our day and age, is the immigrant. The one who is a stranger to the land, a foreigner in the land. The one who needs help, needs provision, needs protection. And it is an expression of Christian love to bring that immigrant into our home. And to love them and care for them and feed them and provide for them. Now this is not a political statement. You can still have walls and you can still protect borders. That's fine. But if we were to think of this kind of activity in our day and age. If you were sitting on your front porch and a stranger, a a person clearly from a foreign land, a visitor to your town comes in. Would it be more Christ-like to call the authorities and report him or to seek to show hospitality to him or her and help them however you could? Something to think about. How might we apply this clear calling to show hospitality to strangers in our day and age? But the second thing that we learn from how Lot treats his visitors is something altogether different. And that is this, it teaches us something about Lot's heart. It teaches us something about the, the moral corruption that's going on in him. When we see him here insist that his visitors not stay in the town square, this suggests that Lot was well aware of the dangers in that city. He was well aware of what could happen because of what was going on in that city. And he couldn't bear the thought of that happening to his visitors. He knew what the men of the city were like and what would happen if they stayed in the town square and he would do anything necessary to prevent that. Now his awareness of the proclivity of sin of the men in his town doesn't make him a sinner. But it is noteworthy that he never attempts to leave And even when he is told by the angels later in the story to leave and flee the city, he lingers. He pauses. And this is a theme that we'll see over and over in this narrative, that there is a pull on Abraham and his family, a pull towards the city, which is unavoidable. It has a corrupting influence on he and his family. So after they enjoy a meal together, before they retire for the evening, we're told that the men of the city surround the house. And it's interesting to note the exact words that Moses uses to describe this scene. He says in verse 4, But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. So all the men of the city. This is not just a... Uh, a, a few men. This is all the men of the city, which demonstrates the pervasiveness of sin in this town. So at least 50% of the population of Sodom, all the men come and surround the house, and what do they want? Look at verse 5. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, despite the Herculean efforts of liberal theologians, it is unavoidably clear that what is being referred to here is homosexual lust. 
The sin of Sodom is homosexuality. That is the sin of Sodom, and that is the reason for its destruction. The Hebrew word here for know is yada. Now, sometimes it's simply uh, in, in reference to getting to know someone, but other times it's used in reference to what we might otherwise call carnal knowledge or sexual relations. In Genesis chapter 4, for example, we're told that Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore him a son. Well, clearly, Eve did not get pregnant with Cain as a result of getting to know her husband. In the same sense, this is not a story in Genesis 19 about the men of Sodom wanting to get to know the visitors in Lot's house better. No, they in fact wanted to have sex with them. Others have tried to explain that the sin of Sodom was a kind of a radical lack of hospitality on the part of them, a a radical lack of hospitality to the strangers, and, and that it's evidenced by their desire to rape the men who were in Lot's house, and that that's why the city was destroyed. It wasn't their homosexuality. It was their intent to rape them. But if the sin of Sodom was really rape, then as hard as it is to think about, why didn't they take lot up on his offer of his daughters they too were outsiders they were strangers in the city as because they were lot's daughters and lot himself is called an outsider by the men of sodom just a few verses later in verse 9 no they wanted the men in lot's house because they were driven by homosexual desire and it was that sin that led to the destruction of sodom and the neighboring cities so it's here church that we must be unequivocal that the sin of sodom was homosexuality now let me give you some other passages from the bible that speak about this because clearly this is something that our culture will revolt at there's a there's a parallel story to this in judges chapter 19 very very similar where the men of the city likewise want to have sex with a man who has come to that town as a visitor. So it's a different town, but the same sin. And the homeowner of that house says explicitly to the men, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. So again, it's dealing explicitly with the homosexual act, and it says it's called wicked and vile in leviticus as god himself is giving a list of sexual perversions to be avoided and forbidden that are forbidden he says in chapter 18 verse 22 you shall not lie with a male as with a woman it is an abomination the word abomination meaning a detestable thing before the lord a thing that is a perversion of god's plan and god's ways Again, in chapter 20, verse 13 of Leviticus, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Now, some will say, hey, aren't we supposed to, like, avoid the Old Testament law, right? Because Jesus has instituted the new covenant. So don't we ignore those old laws? Like where in Leviticus chapter 11... God says that that shrimp and crab and scallops and all the other good yummy things in the ocean that don't have fins and don't have scales are off limits. If we're to obey part of the old law, then shouldn't we obey all of it? And if the part about not eating shrimp can be ignored, well, then why can't we ignore the part that says homosexuality is a sin? This is part of the objection that we'll hear when we refer to the Old Testament as forbidding homosexuality and calling it a sin. So how can can we not ignore, for what reasons ought we not to ignore the Old Testament prohibitions against homosexuality? Two reasons. One, that kind of logic, which is prevalent in our day today, we hear it often. That kind of logic is based on a fundamental misunderstanding of the Mosaic law and how we should interact with the Mosaic Law as New Testament believers. 
Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, he said two things about the law. He says, I did not come to abolish it, but I came to fulfill it. So in Jesus, we have both a confirmation of the law as well as a fulfillment of the law. And so some parts of the Mosaic law are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so they're no longer for us today. They've been fulfilled. Namely, the, the, many of the ceremonial laws and the dietary laws, and not about, like, like about not eating shrimp and so forth. The laws that were for the purpose of protecting the nation of Israel. Why? Because God was going to bring the Redeemer through this country. And so he was protecting that people. But other parts of the law, namely the moral code, the laws governing morality, those are still in place. Perhaps not necessarily the punishment attached to those laws, because one could make an argument that the punishment attached to those laws were for the purpose of protecting the nation through whom he would bring his son as the Redeemer. But the moral code itself, the the laws concerning morality are still in place. But again, not to give us a means by which we achieve righteousness before God, but to show us how unrighteous we all are. But the second reason why we can't overlook the Old Testament prohibition against homosexuality is because the New Testament unequivocally reaffirms that homosexuality is a sin. Let me just give you three places in particular where we see this very clearly. First of all, and most predominantly in Romans chapter 1. Listen to verses 24 through 27. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. This speaks to uh, sexual perversion and sexual immorality in a general way. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Then listen to verse 26. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions... For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Church, there is simply no way to faithfully interpret Romans chapter 1 than to admit that Paul is asserting that homosexuality is a sin. He calls it shameful. He calls it unnatural. Then in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, who are they? Who are the unrighteous? He goes on to describe them. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He says the same thing to his protege Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. Again, Who are they? He answers that question. For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now, there are a lot of sins that are listed there in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and what we just read out of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. There's lots of sins that are in those lists there, which should remind us that we should not pinpoint homosexuality as the only one that is due for the wrath of God. But it is undoubtedly one of them. Undoubtedly. Christians are often accused of only getting riled up about one sin and then handing out passes for all the others that are listed here which I think is a fair accusation in many cases. 
For example, do we get all worked up about liars and perjurers as much as we do the sin about homosexuality? Not so much. But at the same time, here's the difference. Nobody in our culture is celebrating the goodness of lying or the righteousness of perjury or enslaving people, or thievery, or greed, or drunkenness. Nobody in our culture is saying, oh yeah, that's a fine way to live. It's just another alternative lifestyle that you can choose, if you so choose. But they are saying that about homosexuality. And that's why those who call homosexuality a sin are going to be labeled as purveyors of hate, when really they're just simply saying what the Bible is saying. So the primary sin of Sodom was homosexuality, but it wasn't the only sin. God says in Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 through 50, this, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty. And did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. So their sin also was pride. Pride is at the root of almost every sin. It was what motivated Eve to want to become like God and have the knowledge of good and evil. It's what led to the building of the Tower of Babel, that they might ascend up to God's level. And pride being a root manifests itself in fruit. For the people of Sodom, it manifested itself in gluttony. There was an excess of food and subsequently an excess of consuming that food. There was a cherishing of this prosperous ease, as God says. It was a life of comfort. It was a very wealthy city. So it was a life of comfort and ease in Sodom. And they wanted to keep it that way. And so they selfishly withheld help and care for the poor and the needy. And ultimately it manifested itself in the abomination of homosexual activity. And as you look at Ezekiel 16 verses 49 through 50, sadly it's a fairly accurate description of our country today. Pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. It may be descriptive of America, but woe be unto us, church, if it is descriptive of the American church. It ought not to be. But back to our story here. The men of Sodom, they implore, they they demand that Lot, Lot release these two visitors in his home so that they can have sex with them. Lot refuses... And instead, incredibly and tragically, he offers his two daughters. Verse 8. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. There is no biblical justification whatsoever for what Lot does here and offering his daughters to the men of the city. None. John Calvin writes about this. He should have endured a thousand deaths rather than have resorted to such a measure. He sought to ward off evil with evil. Here again, we're confronted with this theme of Lot's moral decay and corruption. Lot is not just in the city. The city is in Lot. Instead of being salt and light and having a good influence on the city, he has allowed the city to have an evil influence on him. Thankfully, the men of the city refuse Lot's daughters and threaten Lot now with rape and violence. They say in verse 9, Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. So he's, he's as, as, as evil, and there's no other way to describe it, as evil as it is for him to have offered his daughters 
as a display of the moral decay that was going on in him because of the evil influence of the city, as, as debauched as that action was, we see him here risking life and limb. He's, you see the scene, he's outside his door. He's outside with these men, and they are seeking to take him now by force and violence. And now, these two visitors show who they are, that they are angels of the living God. They reach out and they grab Lot and they pull him back in and they strike the men of the city with blindness and they begin groping for the door aimlessly. And so we see the rescue of Lot beginning to take shape. Once inside the home, they then revealed to Lot the reason why they were sent to the city, which is to destroy it. They tell Lot that the Lord has sent them there to destroy the city because of the outcry The outcry that we read about in chapter 18, the outcry of sin, the outcry of injustice, the outcry of suffering that came up before the Lord, they say it has become great before the Lord. And so Lot warns then his sons-in-laws. He goes to his sons-in-laws and says, you need to get out. Judgment is coming. And we're told that they think It's a joke. It's laughable. And I wonder how many today laugh at the prospect of God judging sin. Make no mistake that tragically, and it is tragic, that just a few hours later, his sons-in-laws were not laughing. Getting back to our outline here, the angels then warn Lot and his family to get out. But we're told that Lot lingers. He pauses. We don't know exactly what caused him to linger, but there was something about the pull of the city. Someone once said, I don't know who, but said that you can get Lot out of, the, out of Sodom, but you can't get the Sodom out of Lot. The city has become part of him now. But because he was lingering, the angels then take the initiative and they take Lot and his wife and his two daughters physically by the hand and literally drag them out of the city to rescue them. And sometimes that's what God does with us. He invades our life with the grace of God when we aren't even looking for it. And he drags us out of our life of sin and he rescues us. This is what he does for Lot here. He puts them outside the city. And then he instructs them, the angels instruct them to escape to the hills. And verse 16 is very clear that, that this happens to Lot and his wife and his two daughters because of the Lord's mercy. But then the strange scene here where Lot appeals to the angels to let him seek refuge in this city called Zoar which is one of the cities of the valley, presumably one of the cities that would be destroyed by the fire and brimstone. And yet God not only allows him to flee there, but he spares that city because of Lot. And no sooner are Lot and his family outside the city than God rains down sulfur and fire, brimstone from heaven, on to Sodom and Gomorrah and destroy the cities of the valley. An awesome display of the wrath of God. As his family is fleeing to Zoar, we're told that his wife looks back and is turned to a pillar of salt. So the pull from the city was not just on Lot, it was on his wife as well. There was something about the city she didn't want to leave. And so even with her, we see this seemingly harsh display of the wrath of God just for looking back. In the final three verses, the passage closes with this scene of Abraham ascending the same hill that just 24 hours earlier he had ascended with the Lord and petitioned the Lord to save the people of the city if there were at least 10 righteous. Apparently there weren't. 
Because now it's a much different scene as he looks out on the cities of the valley. As the smoke from the ashes that was once the cities is rising up. So what do we learn from this story? How do we apply what God is teaching us? In seeking to bring application to this, I want to appeal to that theme of the three-stranded cord of God's redemptive plan for sinners like us that we've seen over and over in the book of Genesis. We see it vividly in the story. The three strands being man's sin, God's judgment, and God's mercy. We clearly see the sin of man in this story. The sin of homosexuality. We see other sins, perhaps even more foundational than homosexuality, the sin of pride that manifests itself on one hand by a lack of caring for the poor and needy, and on the other hand, with a devotion to sexual perversion. But we also see from Lot's life the corrupting power of sin and worldliness. And we'll talk more about this next week when we see the conclusion of the biblical record of Lot's life. But ever since we were introduced to him in chapter 13, until he slips into scriptural oblivion next week, because we don't see him ever after the end of chapter 19. We never even know that he ever even reunites with Abraham. He just drifts off into oblivion. But the whole time, we see the effects of moral corruption on him. The corrupting power of sin and the world, and it ends up costing him everything. His wife, his dignity, and even his own daughters and ends up with a family legacy of moral corruption. Again, one of the dangers of a passage of Scripture like this is that we get this kind of tunnel vision and think only about those sinners out there that have given themselves to the sin of homosexuality. When in reality, we again, we ought to be thinking about the sin that resides in our own heart and life. But whether it's the sin of homosexuality or the sin of pride or the other sins that are listed in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1, thievery, drunkenness, greed, reviling, swindling, those who strike their fathers and mothers, murderers, sexually immoral, enslavers, liars, perjurers, or any other sin, regardless of what it is, we do no service to anyone to soft sell the seriousness of sin. All sin is serious because all sin is deadly and it is deadly because it offends the holiness of God and because God is just he must punish sin if he did not he would not be just and if he was not just he would not be God which leads us to the second strand of our three-stranded thread that of God's judgment the the judgment of Sodom in scripture over and over again, points to the day of judgment. In Matthew chapter 10, as Jesus sends out the 12, we looked at this the last couple of weeks. He says, If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And why? Because they did not show hospitality. The destruction about Sodom, the destruction of Sodom and, and, and Gomorrah teaches us about the certainty of judgment. It's going to happen. It is a matter of time. Jude writes in Jude 1, verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, which by the way is a good, good description of homosexuality, not rape. They indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. And then he says, this serves as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the, 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 the fire that just lasted for a few hours there, is an example, just a foretaste of the punishment of eternal fire 
that awaits unbelievers in hell. Peter writes in his second epistle also about the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And so if, if we're given the story in our Bible today as an example of the wrath of God that will one day be poured out on sinners on the day of judgment, then how ought we to react to that truth? Well, as believers, we need to be very careful not to delight in the judgment of sin. We ought not to delight ourselves in God's wrath being poured out on sinners. Twice in Ezekiel, God says that he does not delight in the death of the wicked, but would prefer that the wicked turn from his ways and live. And neither should we. We should not delight in this in the least. We look at Abraham in that closing scene. He was not delighting in the destruction of Sodom. Just hours before, he had been pleading that they would be spared. And now he knows, as the writer of Hebrews 10.31 writes, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So we ought not to delight in God's wrath being poured out in sinners and find some kind of odd, sadistic joy in that. But instead, as believers, we ought to be spurred by the promise of coming judgment to bring the gospel to sinners, to show them the way of escape, to warn them that the bridge is out on the road ahead. It is loving to warn them to flee to Christ for rescue and show them that their only hope is Jesus. So there is in this story a tremendous impetus to to declare the good news to people all around us. But... For those who have not come to faith in Christ, perhaps you're here, unbelievers. If you have not placed your faith in Christ, the call of a passage of Scripture like this is a vivid, graphic warning to look at your own sin and then look at Sodom. And flee to Christ for rescue. Trust in what Christ did on the cross as your only hope for rescue from the judgment that you and I and every person in this room deserves because of our rebellion against the King. The grace of God will cover your sins. And make you acceptable, not based on your own attempts at righteousness, but based on his righteousness credited to you. Flee to Christ for rescue. It is your only hope. Don't be like Lot's sons-in-laws who thought the judgment of God was a joke and perished in the judgment. For in Christ we find that third strand of the three-stranded thread, that of God's mercy. We saw traces of God's mercy in this story in a couple of different places. In verse 16, we were told there that Lot lingered when he was told by the angels to flee, get out of the city. He lingered. Something kept him back. But what did God do through the angels? Seized he and his wife and his daughters by the hand and dragged them out of the city as a display of his mercy. And why does God spare Lot in the first place? In the closing verses in verse 29, he says, so it, was, so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham. He remembered Abraham. And sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, which he overthrew the cities in which he had lived. So God remembered Abraham and his promise to Abraham, his promise of land and offering and to be a blessing to the nations. And so even in sparing Lot, God God remembered his covenant promises, his promises of grace and mercy to his children. But in this story, we also see God's mercy to us. 
to the elect. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul is listing all those sins for which the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says this. Let's, let's finish that whole passage now. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. Will now verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And such were some of you, undeserving of God's grace and mercy, fully and completely deserving of God's judgment and wrath, but you were washed. You were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And friend, unless we understand how incredibly undeserving we are of God's grace and mercy, and how fully and completely deserving we are of judgment and punishment, we will not delight ourselves in Christ and appreciate grace as we should. When we see the wrath of God displayed in a passage of Scripture like this, vividly, graphically, fire, whether it's fire and brimstone or whether it's the waters of the flood, and then we recall what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. What was he speaking of? What was the cup? from which Jesus, our Redeemer, drank. It was the cup of God's wrath against sin. What was the cup that Jesus drank? It was the cup of this. It was the cup that was filled with the stuff that we just read about from Sodom and Gomorrah. He drank that. God's wrath, God's anger against sin. He drank it to the dregs for sinners like you and I. The better we see that we deserve that wrath, the more glad we will be in Christ that our Redeemer satisfied that wrath. He was a propitiation, a a satisfier of wrath for us on the cross. And only then will we delight in Jesus Christ and fully appreciate the grace and mercy that he has extended to us. And only then will we have the right impetus to then take that good news to those who stand under the wrath of God still in our family, in our homes, in our neighborhoods and community. So let us come to grips with our sin and our undeserving nature and be overwhelmed yet again by the grace of God. Let's pray.